0: Hello, and welcome to the Osterholm Update, COVID-19, a weekly podcast on the COVID-19 pandemic with Dr. Michael Osterholm. Dr. Osterholm is an internationally recognized medical detective and director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, or CIDRAP, at the University of Minnesota. In this podcast, Dr. Osterholm will draw on more than 45 years of experience investigating infectious disease outbreaks to provide straight talk on the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Chris Dahl, reporter for CIDRAP News. I'm your host for these conversations. It seems fitting that in these final days of summer, the country is in a bit of a holding pattern. New COVID-19 cases are continuing their downward trend, and the surge that we saw in several hotspots over the summer appears to be ebbing. But as the school year begins and colder weather and flu season nears, there's a sense that new hotspots will soon appear and that the situation is likely to get worse before it gets better. So on this August 27 episode of the Ostrom Update, we'll discuss how much worse the coronavirus pandemic could get in the US over the coming months. We'll also delve into the continuing controversy over testing and the FDA's decision-making on therapeutics and vaccines, and we'll answer a question from a parent about their child's return to college. But first, as always, Dr. Ostrom, will start with the podcast with a dedication.
1: Uh, thank you, Chris, and welcome to the audience uh, again here today. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, As I say every time, we appreciate the fact that you would spend some time with us uh, to listen to uh, our thoughts on what's happened with the uh, current pandemic. Um, We know you have lots of other options for finding such information, so it's a a real honor to have you with us. Uh, Today I'm dedicating this uh, podcast to all the parents, all the guardians, all those who have responsibility for all of our students in school whether it be in daycare to K through 12, uh, high red, in whatever form, um, it is a tough time. It's a real tough time. And uh, I know a lot of parents who are extremely concerned about the safety of their children, about what they should be doing or not doing in terms of the implications for transmission of the virus into the family setting. Uh, And so, first of all, I just wanna reaffirm for all of you, if you're feeling nervous and even scared, welcome to the club. There's a lot. And it's not a bad thing. It's a it's a good thing. But we have to address that with information. We have to know what it is that uh, uh, we can do about it or can't do about it and proceed from there. So I, I dedicate this to all of you out there who have concerns, of which it's most of you with children. And uh, we'll hopefully in this podcast provide you with more information to let you make uh, more sound decisions about what you're going to do. As we've discussed for
0: the past few weeks, the slowdown in new COVID-19 cases in the U.S. is going to be affected by students returning to school. And we're already starting to see this on some college campuses, with outbreaks reported at a number of institutions. So, Mike, what does this mean for the spread of the virus in the U.S.?
1: This is a very, uh, should I say, interesting time because we are hitting another point in the uh, COVID-19 journey that we've been on since this uh, winter where in many ways people are looking at this as with a sigh of relief. And before I address schools specifically, let me just give some background on this journey. Uh, We've been talking about it week after week, but I think it uh, deserves a review. Uh, Today, we're at 5.7 million reported cases in the United States. That surely must equate to about 40 to 50 million people who have been infected, meaning that uh, we know that anywhere from Uh, one out of every seven to one out of every 10 cases gets reported in terms of illness and testing. Uh, If we look at that, that's still only about 12 to 15 percent of our nation's population, uh, indicating that we still have a long ways to go before we uh, hit close to that herd immunity concept of of 50 to 70 percent. There have been 177,547 deaths as of this morning. That's a shocking number, and it's one, again, every time I, I mention the number of deaths, it makes it feel very uneasy for me because it's so much more. These are not just numbers. These are people. There are our loved ones. However, if we look over the past two weeks, I I see a almost a deja vu all over again moment relative to what we saw uh, last May when after having gone from 32,000 cases a day being reported in mid-April, we were down to 22,000 cases reported per day in the end of May. And there was a sense that it was, one, the pandemic was going away. Number two, we had won. And number three, this would just be a continuing uh, pattern of reduced number of cases. And then, of course, we all realized what happened. Um, that didn't occur. Uh, we reopened as the term has become known. Uh, People experienced pandemic fatigue. They felt the urge of the season to get out, recreate, spend lots of time with friends, colleagues, and others. And lo and behold, what happened by July 20th, we were reporting 66,450 cases per day. Um, At that point, remember, again, just like we sensed what was happening in April in New York City and other cities like that, the house was on fire in July the house was on fire again. A number of states were seeing a substantial number of cases. Well, what's happened? Well, since that time, really almost as we've predicted, we've seen the case numbers drop from that 66,000 new cases per day in July to 42,716 reported cases today. Over the past two weeks alone, there's been a 21% decrease in the number of new cases. That has to be uh, considered a, a very positive finding. But when we look at that, we're still seeing a thousand deaths a day. Uh, in April seventeenth, we had the largest number of deaths reported at two thousand two hundred and thirty two. So we're one half of that, but that's still a substantial number of deaths. If we look at the fifty states in the District of Columbia, nine states are seeing increasing cases, particularly in the upper Midwest. Eighteen states are at level uh, cases and 24 states are seeing the case numbers drop. Now, when we look at that, that again looks pretty good. More states dropping by far than we're seeing increasing cases. But this is just a what I would call a pause. It is nothing more than that. Why do I say that? Well, we are about to see in our journey going from these 32,000 cases to 22,000 cases, to 66,000 cases, down to 42,000 cases I think we will see in the next three weeks to four weeks a sizable increase in the number of cases. Now, uh, one of the things that will fuel that is what happened at Sturgis, South Dakota. People have said to me, "Why are you critical of Sturges and the motorcycle rally there, uh, when in fact, uh, you know, you weren't nearly as concerned about the protests?" Well, there's big differences. Uh, without any comment on the protests themselves other than just the science of COVID-19 transmission. Those were all outdoors, largely uh, events that took place at night, no benefit of sunlight, but the air was and was able to dissipate the virus very quickly. We didn't see a big increase in cases there. But at Sturges, there's many uh, situations developing now where bar-related outbreaks tattoo parlor related outbreaks. A number of different indoor locations were visited by what was estimated to be over 350,000 different motor vehicle participants. And uh, we're now seeing these cases pour back out throughout the United States. Um, the CDC has determined that uh, persons who went to Sturgis represent people from 61% of the counties in this country that's a pretty sizable number. And we've already seen outbreaks here in uh, Minnesota, small clusters of cases that actually started in its first instance with a, a case, an individual from Sturgis who came back infected, who then has transmitted the virus onto others. Uh, I think you're gonna see that number grow substantially. That by itself will not drive a big national new outbreak, but it surely is going to contribute to that issue. And I think it's important to understand that people who went to Sturges need to take responsibility if they do have symptoms. Um, If they uh, were out there, I would urge them to get tested, although I know many of them uh, do not believe they need to be tested. But I think this is going to be a real challenge. When we look at the transmission in general of this virus, here in Minnesota, for example, the state health department, along with local health department partners, have investigated 47 different bar-associated outbreaks this summer. 55 other events, including weddings and funerals, uh, uh, all related to clusters of cases. So we're going to continue to see this happen and and move on uh, as we uh, go into the fall. Why is that? Well, the case numbers have dropped in part because when we had houses on fire, the distancing took place and we drove down, we call the R-naught, the potential for the virus to transmit and and the actual transmission in the community. But as we've seen already, that's going to wear off. Just as we saw after what happened in April, we're going to see people coming back into public spaces more and more. Masking hopefully will have some impact on reducing transmission in that setting. But again, I worry that we're going to see people coming together, particularly in certain age groups, which then gets me to the issue of colleges and universities. Well, Mike, we've gotten a lot of uh, listener emails on this
0: topic of college campuses, uh, especially from parents. So I'm going to get right into a, a listener email. Uh, we have one from Lori, who uh, writes, my daughter will be going back to college soon. They're making students wear masks, making classes smaller or some are online and making the food service package takeaway. But they're still going to be in a room with one roommate and around others in the dorm. And they will only test if the student has symptoms. What are the chances that she will bring it home to me and her father
1: when she comes home to visit? So Laurie, in terms of answering your question, uh, will your daughter potentially bring the virus home? I can't say she won't, but at the same time, I'll also say that she will potentially be exposed in her dormitory or in her classroom, but there's even probably a greater likelihood she might be exposed at a social event, a party, which we're seeing today widespread on many college campuses, despite the knowledge. Of what's going on with COVID-19, so I think all the parents here, please help your students understand the significance of what's happening. And and you know, I I, I realize that this is a very fine line between lecturing students uh, to be responsible and them saying, "Well, you're responsible for my safety on campus." And both parties, colleges, universities have a responsibility to the safety of their students but students have a responsibility to act safely in the environment they live. And I know that's easier said than done. When you go to college, one of the experiences is this kind of socializing for many students, not all, but for many. And so I think we're at that point of just, please, one fall semester, if you can give it to us, try not to participate in those kind of parties that are going to enhance this transmission. I am already aware of college students in this country, who have become severely ill, who are hospitalized right now from infections acquired in the last three weeks. And so I don't want to sit here and try to scare you, but I also want you to understand there are consequences. And until we see any evidence that that kind of transmission is going to be reduced, I think most colleges are going to have to face the choice either do uh, on site learning with this occurring or distance learning with students, still potentially uh, around campus in some instances, they, they've already had housing uh, deposits down, uh, or back home. And they're still gonna be at risk if they socialize in these bars and these social settings, which they likely will do. So I wish I had better news. I wish I had a magic pill that you know you could take and it would make you completely responsible. And one of the side effects was kindness, um, but I don't. Um, As I have shared with our own board of regents at the University of Minnesota, as I've shared with my fellow regent members of a board, I'm at um, Luther College in Iowa, um, we're gonna see lots of transmission in the next six weeks, 12 weeks. It's gonna happen. Why? Because students are acting as students. And as much as we ask them to be responsible, we can demand them to be responsible, otherwise the consequences of being expelled from school, which is happening, but students get together. Expect that transmission will occur. Expect students will get infected. Uh, We're seeing now instances where students are not cooperating with follow-up, meaning if they are test positive, they're not willing to give contacts names because of the concern of what will happen to the contacts. We're seeing students that are contacts who refuse to isolate themselves for quarantine for 14 days. And, um, you know, that's not all students, surely. There are a number of very responsible students. But parents, you have to tell your kids, this is a very serious situation. And we are going to see this new phenomena called the long-haul disease. Basically, individuals who were never hospitalized, who were not apparently seriously ill, who then at two, three, and four months are still unable to go back to classes, unable to go to work literally a severe chronic fatigue syndrome-like picture, we're seeing some uh, very serious cardiac manifestations, some neurologic manifestations, this virus is going to have an impact on you for a lot longer than just those few days that you think you might get infected and be in your room. And so we don't understand how frequently this occurs yet, but the more we study it, the more we understand that it occurs a lot more than we once thought. So you don't want to get infected, you just don't. And at this point, what we the best tools we have is, yes, we can surely test all clinical cases, which we know will only get a part of the transmission picture, the asymptomatic transmission will be there. But if students refuse to be tested, or if students refuse to follow up on the uh, appropriate actions once tested and found to be positive or negative at the point where they, they have been exposed, then I think we still have a huge challenge in our hands, and that's what we're going to see for this fall. Colleges and universities are going to have to make decisions. Do we go the course knowing we're going to have transmission on our campuses, or do we say, you know, send them back home? There'll still be transmission, still going to occur in our communities, but it likely won't be nearly as concentrated where you have lots and lots of students together uh, celebrating, in a sense, uh, their school year.
0: So returning to the issue of testing, uh, White House Coronavirus Task Force Coordinator Deborah Burks last week, on a uh, during a private call with state and local officials, suggested every university should be able to do surge testing, with schools performing 5,000 to 10,000 tests a day. So first of all, how possible is that? And secondly, given the issues that you've laid out, would that really make
1: any difference? Well, this surely uh, was a surprise to everyone in the education area when Dr. Burks made this statement. I think it was terribly unfortunate. It was not well thought through. It set expectations for uh, higher ed, for K through 12, for parents, for the communities that were just simply unrealistic. And let me just give you a sense of that. And then we can come back and talk about how we might better use testing. What are the implications? There are 5,000 college campuses in this country. And she said for each college campus, there should be that number of eight to 10,000 tests a day available for students. That's 40 to 50 million tests a day for the whole country. Right now, if you look at what we're doing, we're doing about 720,000 tests a day for this week. How are we going to do 40 to 50 million tests a day And I think that that is just so irrational to even say that. Just think about we've only done 77 million tests total since the beginning of the pandemic here in the United States. So I I don't know if those are off-the-cuff comments. She's never clarified them. They surely do not fit with anything the CDC or anyone else at HHS has said. So but the point she's raising is we need more testing. Okay, well, we're not going to do that for higher ed, trust me. And we have another testing scenario coming down. The Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which oversees the federal financing for long-term care, is about to issue new guidance on testing of staff to assure that they're not bringing the virus into long-term care facilities. And the way this is set up is that for counties that have less than 5% Uh, positive levels in their uh, routine testing, then you have to test each staff member monthly. If it's five to 10% in your county is positive on any one given time during that period, then you have to test weekly. And if it's greater than 10% in your county, you have to test twice a week. Well, we have 25,000 plus individuals who work in long-term care in the state of Minnesota, just in Minnesota. So you're talking about, at minimum, 25,000, and in some cases, at least four times to five times that amount each month for testing, which could bring us well into the 50, 60,000 tests a month just for long-term care. Now you add this into the college setting and know that right now we're doing about, on average, 14,000 tests a month in Minnesota. Now, we're trying to get that number up. We'd like to get it into the 30,000, 40,000 range per day tests, but that's what we're testing. So um, the recommendations for from Dr. Burks were just absolutely uh, a non-starter. They, they made no sense. But let me just back up and say again, as I pointed out earlier, and this will be heavily criticized, I know that, because there are already people who are concerned that I am somehow opposed to testing everybody, everywhere, every day, simply not the case, but I'm a realist. And we already know there are many people in this country who unfortunately don't believe that this pandemic exists. Now there is no way you're going to test those people. Number two, we're already hearing from students who refuse to be tested or who basically will not comply with what you need to do once you are tested and found to be positive, or they're a contact of someone, and they get tested one time two or three days later and feel like now I got a free get out of jail card, I'm fine, I'm not positive, when in fact they actually are infected. And let me just quickly go over the criteria for what we mean when we're talking about test positivity and what you must do and if you're a contact. The current recommendation, if you're found to be test positive, you should isolate for 10 days, quarantine yourself, be out of harm's way, not exposing anyone else. And after the 10 days after you were positive and 24 hours without a fever, you're now free to go back into everyday life. But that's 10 days. If you're a contact of someone who was positive, you have to actually isolate yourself for 14 days and you can test yourself in those first few days, but in many instances, you'll be negative even though you are infected, and you will become positive down the road. So uh, right now, some have recommended getting tested at three to four days, but knowing that that very well may be negative. Others are actually doing it seven to 10 days. To, by that time, you'll know for sure uh, if you really have virus positivity, and that may... Uh, help you understand the 14 days. But even if all of those tests are negative, you're still isolating yourself for 14 days. How many college students in this country really understand that? That all these contacts, they may end up having to continuously uh, quarantine themselves for 14 days every time they have a contact that is is legitimate. And that is basically 15 minutes of face-to-face contact time or in the same vicinity like that. So I think that one of the challenges we have with testing is just to get it applied. We see all this debate in folks about how many tests are available, how they get used, but nobody talks about what do they do? Do they make a difference in what happens? And so what we're trying to do is bring some some semblance of order here and say, one, if you're test positive, remember 10 days, you're out. And that's then 24 hours without fever. If you're a contact, you're out 14 days. And if you don't do that, you're only putting your colleagues, your friends at harm's way. I had a student who was on a Zoom meeting with a group of other students the other day who overheard a conversation of a woman who basically was in a parking ramp talking to someone on a cell phone, indicating that her roommates were all infected and were positive. And it wasn't clear if this student was positive, but I get the sense that she wasn't going to go get tested because she didn't want to know because she didn't want to miss class. Now, you know, I'm not going to suggest that's every college student out there, but that kind of mindset only is going to amplify the problem. So smart testing is about having the right test at the right time for the right outcome. And I can't emphasize that enough, how important that is. And so, from our standpoint, testing does have a role. It can play a role. But, as one, I've already pointed out, testing all the incoming students has not materially impacted any of the college outbreaks we're seeing where that testing was done. Number two, it's about behavior, behavior, and behavior. And so, whether or not someone's child is partying in these group settings like that, you know. That surely is going to be the magnifying event that will move this around, just like we see at Sturgis, just like we see with the other bar outbreaks. And uh, that, I'm afraid, is what we're up against. That is what's going to drive this next episode of the pandemic to the kind of numbers that I think are very, very concerning. Turning now uh,
0: to the international situation, Uh, we're seeing a real rise in cases in France, Germany, and Spain, as well as in South Korea which seeing a flare up after doing so well for so long uh, is Mike, is this simply the leaky bucket virus doing what it does? And are you concerned that things could get out of control in some of these countries?
1: Well, this surely is disheartening and um, let me go back and, and kind of replay the op-ed piece that Neil Kashkari and I did in the New York times several weeks ago, talking about lockdowns. And I made the point at that time that uh, the United States hadn't learned the lesson that a number of these foreign countries did, that they had to sufficiently lock down, meaning they really had to drive the virus activity down to a level of less than one case per 100,000 population per day to be able to fight it on a more routine basis, meaning that they exhausted 99.9% of that coronavirus forest fire, and it was just the small brush fires, the little places that would heat up again that then the county fire department could handle. They didn't need the super forest fire crew to come in and do it. And at the same time, we never got close. So, you know, we we, we ended at about uh, 60% or 70% fire contained in, in by Memorial Day and then let go. And I said, you know, we need to learn those lessons. Well, I think right now the, a number of the, uh, countries around the world that did such a great job at this, unfortunately, are learning our lessons. And I wish they wouldn't. And that is, they didn't keep the brake pedal on. Not not talking about all the way to the floor, but enough to, cons- to slow transmission down when it started to flare up again. And so you're seeing countries like Germany, France, India, Argentina, you know, South Korea, Ch- China even, where we're now seeing this increased transmission from opening up more. And I would just say that, uh, you know, they still are orders of magnitude lower in terms of case numbers per population than we are, which surely still gives them an opportunity to tighten up and knock things down. But they're gonna have to do that now. They can't let this get out of control again, and then they have to go into a complete lockdown. China is doing that in one regional area. So I think that that uh, the message here is is that again, what are we trying to do? We have a goal. This is not a lifetime goal. This is a goal to get us to a vaccine, minimize as many cases as you possibly can, until we can afford ourselves some type of immunologic protection from a vaccine, and then, at that point, you know we can really begin to hopefully release our societies back into everyday life. Now. I think that's going to be a challenge, although I think a number of these countries are surely trying to do that. Uh, But they have to look at themselves now and say, you know, it wasn't quite as simple as I thought. For us, I come back to this issue over and over again. I've heard so many times in the past couple of weeks how naive I was in writing that op-ed piece, nobody's going to lock down. They might not, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't know what the medicine is. And what I mean by that is, remember in that op-ed that we did, We not only talked about just working to get the numbers down to less than that one case per 100,000, but then by doing that, we could let the break up. We could actually start to have a more civil society, and that's where the economic impact will actually be very positive. Remember, we said, hold everyone whole. Not everyone was held whole after the March outbreak. It was not done. Many small businesses, many individuals were hurting badly. And what we need to do is make sure at this round, and it doesn't have to be a national lockdown. New York doesn't need to do a lockdown. Uh, they're there. But in, in some areas of the country, it may vary within a state. But the bottom line is is trying to drive the case numbers down to a place where then they could be contained through our public health actions and whatever we do in terms of mitigation, like closing bars, et cetera. So, so I think that from the international side, I do believe you're going to see in a number of these countries, you know, some substantial changes in what they're doing uh, to drive it back down again with the hope that, you know, we're getting closer, hopefully, to a finish line. And uh, that may be the case. Now, there are other countries that are just like us. Many of the countries of South America, Brazil, India really falls in that category now, too, in terms of they're just houses on fire. And the number of cases they have per 100,000 are so high that they just can't drive it down with the County fire department. They still need the super forest fire crew in there to put it down. So uh, we'll see what happens over the course of the next few months. Clearly as we get uh, in the Northern hemisphere to winter, indoor air again is going to be a challenge. Uh, And, and we don't know exactly uh, how much that's going to increase the number of cases, but I think it really is going to be a challenge. And, you know, As you said in the question, Chris, about the issue of the leaky bucket virus, this is exactly what this thing is doing. It is exactly it. Look at New Zealand. Uh, They have done a remarkable job again over the last three to four weeks trying to contain what was inside of New Zealand, but look at the hard work. And uh, so this isn't gonna be easy. At this point, whatever we do from a public health standpoint will have a direct impact on our economy. And we have seen the recovery in Europe uh, we've seen what New York has been able to do, even though they're not where they weren't were. They are surely in much better shape than many of us where houses have been on fire. I also want to just add a comment. Another uh, listener wrote to me this week, do I mean New York or do I mean New York State? And by New York, meaning New York City. And when I talk about this, this is New York State. Uh, this is the, the entirety of the governor's effort there, but specifically New York City which is where the house was on fire so badly. So to me, that's what I tend to follow most closely. But uh, I just want to clarify, this is New York State. There was major news from the FDA earlier this week with the
0: announcement of emergency youth authorization of convalescent plasma for treatment of COVID-19. Many public health and infectious disease experts, even those those who acknowledge that convalescent plasma could benefit patients, have questioned the data that the EUA was based on and the way that the FDA presented the data to the public. So Mike, my question for you is, does this decision by the FDA raise concerns for you about how the agency will handle review and approval of a vaccine?
1: The FDA's modern regulatory functions really begin with the passage of the 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act, a law that was a quarter century in the making that basically prohibited interstate commerce and adulterated and misbranded food and drugs and it has been a critical part of assuring that consumers are are receiving safe food and drugs uh, for the past uh, 114 years. I can't emphasize enough how those of us in public health have counted on the FDA's regulatory science work, meaning that there is a science to this in terms of how do you measure how effective a drug is, or how safe a drug is, or or what the implications might be for side effects. And so this has been a very, very important part of our public health system and our medical care system in this country. And with they have done it with very little controversy. Uh, you know, there are times that some of us have challenges about one aspect of regulatory science or enforcement but basically we've counted on them to be the umpire, to call balls and strikes as fairly as they possibly can, so that we as the public knows what drugs are safe, what drugs are effective, you know, what vaccines are safe and effective. And so this is not a small issue because it covers so much of our everyday lives. When COVID-19 first arrived on the scene, the FDA was immediately brought into the activity in terms of helping to understand what kind of tests we need to have and how to approve them so that we could effectively uh, inform people were they infected or not and they were available. We understood the need for drugs, safe drugs, effective drugs. We also understood that the real weapon we were going to have in this pandemic eventually would be a vaccine and that we needed to understand how these vaccines would protect. Do they protect? How safe are they? And who who are they safe for, everyone or just some? And so the challenge with the FDA began virtually immediately with the pandemic emergence around the issue of testing. People who have listened to this podcast know that I was very critical early on of the FDA for basically creating an environment equivalent to the wild, wild west, where because there had been such a shortage of testing, Uh, they started to approve almost anything that uh, was considered a possible test. And we saw junk, literally, on the market being marketed as an FDA-approved test in the sense that it was signed off by the FDA not having been evaluated by them. And that's improved. We still have challenges with testing. But then there was a whole issue of how do we speed along drug and vaccine development that uh, we need critically. We we, we need it to be to be done as quickly as possible, but we need it to be thorough. We can't cut corners, because in the sense, if we put something out that's not safe, first of all, you injure the patient who receives that drug or that vaccine, and at the same time, uh, you never really do find out what works because uh, you're not testing all the different products. So there was a lot of concern about. Uh, Would the FDA be under some kind of political pressure to move things along? And we saw that with hydroxychloroquine and the fact that the uh, White House uh, uh, basically pushed this drug. Now, you know, on this podcast, I have been absolutely nonpartisan agnostic. I've served roles in the last five presidential administrations. I served two Democratic governors, two Republican governors, one independent governor, a state epidemiologist. I just had a role uh, in this administration for a year serving as a uh, citizen science envoy for the State Department, and I've just tried to call balls and strikes, too. That's it. Not partisan. So please take my comments today as someone who is just merely talking about the critical nature of our safety system for drugs and vaccines. So I was concerned, like many, that the interference, in a sense, of what was seen as A political decision was overriding the science decisions. You saw the challenges of that. You saw the challenges with testing. Um, We continued to have challenges with uh, what was an approval for the hydroxychloroquine to come on the market uh, as an emergency authorized product Um, that subsequently was revoked. uh, But it it was a real challenge in terms of, wow, could the FDA be influenced in a way that we'd never seen before? Well, then there has been this rush to bring products forward. And, you know, you've seen all the rhetoric. I'm not going to go into it about uh, what this means. But let me just let me just share with you a piece that was missing this past week that didn't get discussed. This is regarding one of the drugs that initially was hailed as a major breakthrough. And uh, the rhetoric placed with it accordingly by, again, largely political leaders from our country. And this was Redemsivir. Redemsivir is, is a drug that uh, uh, had been evaluated in the early uh, studies, case control, randomized placebo-controlled trials. And uh, this was a drug that received the emergency authorization uh, designation. And here's the conclusion of the final paper that got published this week. And let me just read it for you. It says, among patients with moderate COVID-19, those randomized to a 10-day course or remdesivir did not have a statistically significant difference in clinical status compared with standard care at 11 days after initiation of treatment. Patients randomized to a five-day course or remdesivir had a statistically significant difference in clinical status compared with standard care, but the difference was of uncertain clinical importance. Is that a breakthrough drug? Is that one that you could hang your hat on that was going to make great clinical difference, and yet it was hailed as such, and it was pushed? Well, now along comes the issue with plasma therapy. And, you know, again, we're looking for whatever we can bring, even if it's a layered effect of a number of different drugs, that may help. But you have seen the rhetoric. In the last um, uh, two weeks, the FDA initially said there was not sufficient data out of the more than 70,000 people who received this drug, there was never a randomized placebo-controlled trial, meaning that ability to assess those who got the drug, those who got a placebo or an inert product, and no one knew who got what in terms of the clinicians, but only the study uh, directors did, and then they could break that code and find out, did it really work or not? Well, as you know, when you don't have an, an, a randomized controlled trial, then you might have some other endpoints you can use. But what happened was a week ago, the FDA, with some NIH um, input, said we don't have sufficient information here to approve emergency use authorization. Then suddenly, uh, after some very public statements about by leaders in the administration, uh, that tune changed. And uh, on the night before uh, the political convention, the drug was announced to have an emergency use authorization. Uh, at that point, there were many people who were very challenged by what that meant, and, and meaning that if once you did that, you'd never really be able to study this again, because of the fact that who's going to take a potential placebo if they know that they can get the drug on emergency use authorization as opposed to enrolling in such a study. And then on top of it, the FDA commissioner, Stephen Hahn, actually misspoke and basically acknowledged later that when he said there was a claim of a 35% reduction in mortality, it was not 35% overall; it was 35% of, of those who have died, might not have died, not all people. It was a, a, a very different statement. It was a relative, not an absolute risk and reduction. And we've had members of uh, the senior leadership of the administration make misstatements out there about how effective this was already. And, you know, when we hear statements constantly being made about this is going to be done in Trump time, not regular regulatory time that becomes a real concern. Again, not a partisan statement. I'd be saying this with regard to whoever was in leadership positions in the FDA. Now we're concerned that uh, this past week was released a statement that in fact, it's possible that a vaccine will be released before the election. This has been deemed by some as the October surprise. Um, This was discussed by the administration with leadership uh, on the Hill. And I can tell you it has sent up a thousand red flags among my colleagues and me, because we have to make sure that these vaccines are safe and effective. We know time is of the essence, but at the same time, you can't cut corners on that. The public deserves that. And what was challenging about this is the fact that um, if this were to occur, based on the precedence we've seen between lab testing, hydroxychloroquine, remdesivir, uh, the whole issue with plasma therapy, there's a pattern here that's developing that is very concerning. Would in fact there be a surprise vaccine released? And this one we can give you a pretty good hint on is that in fact, there won't be a vaccine ready to go by October. It's like the Iowa farmer who decides that he wants to take the second half of the summer off. So he plants twice as many acres in April so he can harvest in July. So he doesn't have to wait until September. Well, that doesn't work that way. We know how many people have been enrolled in these studies. We know where these studies are at in terms of what it's gonna take to fulfill the kind of testing program that will be necessary to see how effective these vaccines are and how safe they are. And, you know, I am just one of many who are looking carefully at this. And I sit in on a weekly conference call each week with the Operation Warp Speed people listening to what's going on, uh, you know, understanding what plans are being developed. And there's just no way that this vaccine will be ready. My worst nightmare, my worst nightmare with this, one day there'll be a vaccine put forward as a authorized vaccine under emergency use authorization, two things will happen. One is many of us will have to stand up and say no, which will then only fulfill the sense that somehow public health is trying to block some other outcome when it's all we're trying to do is protect the public. And then we'll cause all kinds of credibility issues with vaccines in general. If we're saying, no, this vaccine isn't adequately tested, we don't know. I mean, I can't imagine the public's viewpoint of all this. They're going to be swaying in this hurricane wind of what's going on. That's number one. Number two is that once you have an emergency use authorization vaccine approved, it's going to pretty much shut down the programs for all the rest of the vaccines in terms of understanding how well they work. Because if I'm there and I got a vaccine that's approved, why am I going to take a potential experimental vaccine or the placebo that goes with it? Why would I do that? that'll shut those programs down. So ladies and gentlemen, I just can't tell you enough how, man, I lose sleep over this. This is really concerning. And we must demand an apolitical, scientific, rigorous evaluation of any of these products done with Godspeed. No no room for, you know, uh, you know weekends off. This is a 24-7, 365-day operation, but we've got to do it right. And if we don't, we will, I believe, lose so much uh, credibility if we've not already lost it among the public in terms of what we can do and can't do from a public health standpoint and the safety and the effectiveness of vaccines and these drugs. So I, I, I know this was a long drawn out explanation, but this is, this is I can't tell you how important this is. This is really important. I count on the integrity of the FDA both as individuals who work there, but also as an agency for my kids and my grandkids. That's what I count on. I wanna make sure that the vaccines that my kids and grandkids are, are, are getting are safe. I gotta count on it. I can't, I can't count on a political decision. I need a scientific decision. So I, I just, if, if it sounds like I'm into this, I am, because I, I just have never imagined anything that could be like this. Um, you know, I had the good fortune uh, to spend time years before he died with Tom Clancy, the famous author. I'll never forget, one night he looked at me and said, "You know, Mike, the only difference between reality and fiction is that fiction has to make sense." And I, I'm challenged right now. So, so be it. This is where I'm at. This is not a partisan statement. I would love nothing more than to see all these drugs and vaccines come on the market as soon as possible, right now, if they could but they've got to stand up to the test of time and the test of regulatory science.
0: Another big story this week was the report from Hong Kong of a 33-year-old man who was hospitalized with COVID-19 in March and then tested positive again on August 15th with genetic testing confirming that this was a reinfection and not prolonged viral shedding. So, Mike, is this a surprise or something that people should be concerned about, and what does it tell us about immunity?
1: Well, I have... Commented on many occasions on this podcast about the sense of durable immunity and how important this is. Is this immunity from infection or vaccines going to last two months, five months, ten months? Uh, if it doesn't last uh, to protect you against uh, getting ill again, does it make your illness less severe? And so we've anticipated this because we've seen this with coronaviruses in general, the cold coronavirus which are, If one looks at the coronaviruses that cause colds, if you look at MERS and SARS, this has been a hallmark of these viruses. So it shouldn't be unexpected. I think the concern we've had about uh, previous information on potentially losing your immunity once you had it was that the early studies based that on these ongoing PCR positive test results, you know, the tests that basically pick up the genetic material that's in your body that's being excreted out, we call it viral debris. And that can occur long after you've lost the ability to actually make full intact viruses. And so finally, it was well understood then that just excreting this for a long time didn't mean you were chronically infected or you got reinfected. If you had a short period of time where you weren't excreting, then you started again. But what's happened here is the case in in Hong Kong was an individual who was infected last March, who then uh, was actually uh, not only tested uh, for the presence of the virus by PCR, but actually had a virus culture obtained. So they grew the virus out. Patient was moderately, very moderately ill, um, Mm -hmm. almost asymptomatic. And then the uh, patient went to Europe uh, four and a half months later and came back And in that time period, obviously, came in contact with the virus again in Europe. Upon arriving in Hong Kong, was tested as part of routine screening, was found positive. Uh, They were thoughtful enough to go in and actually do a virus culture on him. They grew a new virus. And the virus was was very different than the one that he had had earlier in the year, but very similar to what was circulating in Europe. So clear and compelling evidence that this was a reinfection. Um, Because he was not severely ill to begin with in the first illness, he couldn't really assess was there a less severe disease this time, or the fact that maybe why he uh, lost his immunity was because he had such a mild illness before that that might be tied to it, the more severe illness you get there. Since that time, two additional cases have come out in the last 24 hours. One is an older person in the Netherlands, and another one is an elderly woman in Belgium, who both had very similar experiences to this individual in in Hong Kong. And in all three of the cases, it's convincing that they were infected with virus A a beginning and three to four months or five months later got infected with virus B. So what it does is it proves the concept that there is what we call waning immunity, at least, where it doesn't stay around necessarily to protect you against reinfection. Now, let me just take a step back from this because there's different kinds of immunity that we're looking at. And what are the implications of this for the big pandemic? If one looks at the immune status, there's really kind of four categories we think about. One is called sterilizing immunity, which means either through having had disease or a vaccine, my immune response is so significant and so effective that basically I just don't get infected again. It it literally shuts down whatever that infectious agent is, a virus, whatever, and there's really no growth at all. And I don't even realize I've been exposed to the virus. That's by far the best. And that would be great if you had that for a lifetime. That's not going to be the case here. I don't think any of us think that there's sterilized immunity. Rather, there's functional immunity. And that is the kind where you have enough of a response where you may get a temporary infection. Um, And you may not even realize you're infected, but in fact you are, and the virus is potentially circulating in you, uh, but you have enough immunity that it's quickly wiped out, it's quickly gone, and you may not even realize you're infectious, or for that matter, hopefully even be infectious to others. That's probably what we're going to see in more of these illnesses, and often with functional immunity, you do see a reduction in the severity of illness so that if I got really sick the first time, the second time I might get sick, but much milder, and even if it's a third time, even milder yet. We haven't demonstrated that for certain yet with this uh, COVID-19, but we're hoping, if anything, that may be where we're gonna see some protection. The third category is waning immunity, where over time you have protection, and with it, basically, um, uh, it's more effective, the closer you get to the time you're either vaccinated or the time that you were uh, infected itself. But that over time with this, you can actually see that it's, it, the immunity changes. And so um, you lose that protection potentially in weeks to months. And again, with this one, you would hope that the infection would be much less severe though, meaning that it's not enough to stop you from getting reinfected, but enough to basically make it less severe. Then finally, there's just lost immunity. This really is where you just don't have any more protection. And we surely have infectious diseases like that where uh, a one-time hit doesn't make you immune to any subsequent hits later on. Um, and that is one that's a challenge, for example, with vaccines. It's almost impossible to to do vaccines. So, um, to me, I think we surely are gonna be confronted with what happens if these vaccines only work for a few months? What happens if infection, the infection status only works for a few months? Um, our hope is at the very least that we just have milder and milder infections. Um, and that, uh, you know, it'll raise questions about uh, revaccination, booster doses, when, how. Um, and And any of these scenarios that we see right now is still gonna be a real challenge for much of the world that if I'm encountering this virus for the first time, I'm still going to be in that same risk pool that we were, we are today or we were in in uh, March uh, in terms of having severe disease, even if I have a vaccine in this country or I am, I've been infected several times. So, so stay tuned on this one. This is one where we're going to have some real challenges. Uh, and at this point, we just really don't know what this immunity means other than the fact that... Um, We're going to have to confront it.
0: And Michael, last question here, Uh, as we all know, you get a lot of feedback from our listeners and you got some interesting feedback on your COVID-19 forest fire analogy. Uh, So so what
1: did you hear from one of our listeners about that? This is from Alexander. And I just want to thank you very much, Alex, for sending this. Uh, It was very thoughtful. And he said, and I quote, I think the analogy of COVID to a fire is apt but many people aren't seeing flames or smoke or smelling a fire. Alcohol, which is used in auto racing, burns with a flame, which can be very difficult to see and without much smoke. And I think that's actually right on. I think he's right that many people have yet to understand that this is coming to your hometown. It's coming to someone in your family, uh, which will happen over time. And so, Alex, I will... Try to uh, incorporate this concept of the alcohol fire into my uh, COVID virus forest, forest fire uh, approach, and I just want to thank you for your very thoughtful comment on this, and and for sharing this with me. So, yeah, um, uh, a great observation, and thank you. Any parting words this week, Mike? Well, thank you again. Uh, Thanks everyone for being online today. Was uh, somewhat of a, a bit of an emotional uh, podcast for me. I'm struggling mightily with, with what's happening in our college campuses. I'm struggling with regulatory science. Uh, some days I I just struggle. And uh, for all of you that are out there struggling, just know that we are too. And that uh, uh, there are days I ask myself, <laughs> why do we do this? This is this is crazy. And then I just have to think for one moment about why I do it. And it's my grandkids and kids and all of you out there, it makes it very easy to do. It's a challenge. Um, but we're going to hang in here together. And one of the things that I can't tell you how much it means to us is all of the notes you send us. Our staff reads these. I tell you, it, it, I, I can't begin to tell you how wonderfully kind and how, how much it means to us to have you share with us your feelings and your thoughts. And, uh, you know, if we don't always get it right, we'll try just like today. Uh, you know, Janet, I didn't get it right necessarily, but, uh, you know, you at least have a better sense of where it is. And then we get guys like Alex who think a lot clearer than we do about some issues. So, so please, you know, let us know what we can do to share more timely, relevant, and hopefully thoughtful information. Um, as I've said many times in the past, you know, I spend about 90% of my time trying to learn, 7% of my time making mistakes, and 3% of the time trying to correct them. So, um, you know, we welcome your feedback. This is one of those uh, closing moments that I cherish. This was an email that I didn't get a chance to read right away when it first came in, uh, as we did have a number of them. But when I read it, I knew right away I had found a gold mine. Um I had to look no further than the tears running down my cheeks. This was a, a email from Laura, who lives here in Minnesota, whose eighth-grade daughter, Amber, wrote a song. And as Laura said, when thinking about song lyrics for the school webcast, consider my eighth-grade daughter's original song, Crazy Days. She was asked by one of her teachers how she was dealing with the change, and her response was, with music. He asked her to write a song about her feelings, and this is what she created. I will read you the lyrics that were sent, but she, uh, Laura kindly sent Amber's actual recording of this, and it was remarkable. It was remarkable. Amber, you are such an incredible gift to all of us. So here is Amber's song, Crazy Days. Far apart, heavy hearts, world delays in these crazy days. Feeling blue, happy too. Different moods in these crazy days. The world right now is a crazy place. Gloves on your hands, mask on your face. The world right now may seem very strange, but we can get through this change. Taking care, don't be scared. Find your way in these crazy days. The world right now is a crazy place. Gloves on your hands, mask on your face. The world right now may seem very strange, we can get through this change. In the end, things will mend. See your friends after crazy days. Amber, thank you for sharing that with all of us. We need those kinds of words more than I can ever tell you. So, with that, I want to thank all of you for being with us again. Uh, I want to thank the staff at SIDRAP. Uh, I work in one of the most incredible places in the whole world. And um, we all are so appreciative of you in this audience. And uh, again, I urge all of you to be a full participant in this pandemic of kindness. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Osterholm Update.
0: If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. And be sure to keep up with the latest COVID-19 news by visiting our website, sidrap.umn.edu. The Osterholm Update is produced by Maya Peters, Corey Anderson, and Angela Ulbrich.